Well, thank you guys again for letting me have the opportunity to speak and just being here this weekend. I really haven't, I mean, it's strange to say that I've enjoyed it, but I really have enjoyed it. Just, you guys have been super kind, and um, I just love that we get to talk about what I think is a, I mean, I think a lot about how I think one of the saddest realities of, of life is that the things that we need to talk about the most, we tend, especially as men, to talk about the least. And I think depression, for a lot of us, is a shameful thing to talk about, so I love a chance to get just to, to talk about it together today. And to do that, I want to read, really I want to look at Psalm 102. And I'm going to read it for us, and then I'm going to kind of walk a little bit through it, and then I guess we'll do some time for Q&A. So Psalm 102, I love the, the little intro line. A prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Here's what the psalmist writes, Psalm 102. Hear my prayer, O Lord, let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me, answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse, for I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink because of your indignation and anger. For you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You were remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come, for your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory, for the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord." That he looked down from his holy height, from heaven, the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners and to set free those who are doomed to die. They may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise when peoples gather together in kingdoms to worship the Lord. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations." Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure, and their offspring shall be established before you. Let me pray for us again, and then I want to dive into some thoughts in Psalm 102, but let me pray one more time. Our Lord, we do praise you that we can to take the words of C.S. Lewis, that we can bring before you what is actually in us, not what ought to be in us. And Lord, I pray that as brothers, that you would enable us, would you give us the grace to do that, uh, to do that before you, to do that before each other? Would you give us the grace uh, to be weak, that your strength might be sufficient for us? Would you give us the grace uh, to, to admit and talk about those things like depression, like anxiety that we're afraid to talk about, but desperate at the same time. Would you meet us here in this place and do wonderful things, for you are the wonderful counselor, Lord Jesus, and we ask that you would come and be that and more to us. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. 
Amen. So I have this image in my mind that I want to kind of start with today, because I think, you know, I said it uh, with some of the offers this morning. We had a guy named Rankin Wilburn, I've mentioned his name a few times, come and speak to us at REF staff training, and he said this thing that, I, that I'll kind of has stuck with me since that time uh, this winter. And he basically said, we want the Lord's Spirit to do this thing in us that he would just simply called stabilization. We want the Spirit's work in us to make us healthier, make us happier, you know, make us feel steady. And it seems like the Lord's way is the complete opposite of that. It seems like the Lord's way is one of destabilization, that he actually seems to unravel us, expose us, undo us, much like Isaiah and Isaiah 6, that we might see our need for Jesus more, that we might see our weakness more, because part of seeing our weakness is that we might find the strength of Jesus. Part of seeing our weakness is that we might find the love and mercy and grace of Jesus to be greater and greater and greater. And the image I have is that our neighbors across the street, um, we're, not, we're not like the best evangelists in the world. We don't know them that well, so don't, I don't want you to hear it that way. But one of the things that's interesting is they started doing this remodel in their bathrooms, and I guess for some reason, as they took out tons of debris, it just sort of started building up in their front yard. I'm not sure if their contractor just didn't want to get a dumpster or if they didn't have a permit to get a dumpster, but literally just piles of just debris, you know, broken tile, an old toilet, just sort of kind of building in the front of their yard. And like, it didn't bother me at all as neighbors, but it was interesting because the way that we knew the contractors were at work rebuilding, refinishing, remodeling the bathroom was this mess that was being made in the front yard. And I think, this is why I love this quote from C.S. Lewis about God's work in our lives. Here's what Lewis, here's how he said it. He said it like this. He said, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that. Uh, you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you were not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting in an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be a made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come in, come and live in it himself. And that image for me is sometimes, most of the time, part of how we know that God is at work in us is things are getting, things are getting messy. And I think often depression and anxiety can be a, a huge part of that. And so what I want to kind of do is looking at Psalm 102 is just think about what this psalmist is, is processing in terms of the mess God is making in his life and the suffering that God has brought into his life. And I really just want to do it, I guess, at three kind of different points. First, I just want to talk a little bit about the dark clouds of suffering in a William Cooper kind of way. Second, I want to talk about the unexpected blessings of suffering. And then lastly, I want to talk about the hidden smile of God behind it all. So first, just think with me for a second about the dark clouds of suffering, and I think there are kind of three different clouds that, that something like depression, something like anxiety brings. And here's the first one. The cl- we call it the cloud of the pointlessness of life. Uh, you, in this psalm, the psalmist is saying things like, I'm forgetting to eat my food. Why? Because life feels pointless. What's the point? 
If you've ever been in the throes of depression, you know that feeling. What is the point of getting up? What is the point of getting dressed? What is the point of taking a shower? What is the point of doing anything? Life can feel incredibly pointless, and, and, and really, it, suffering raises the question, what is the point of all this? And it's a lonely thing. I remember my uh, mentor, who's kind of a father figure to me, being at his funeral, and, and his name was Clark Bonham. He was a Grew up in a wealthy family in Sumter, South Carolina, and he was a, you know, they owned an insurance, a family insurance business together, and he really, especially after college, became a dear, dear man to me. And about the same time that we got really close, he got diagnosed with colon cancer. And my second, or I guess my third year of seminary, he had actually left the insurance business. He'd felt called by God into ministry. He was going uh, to seminary at the time. He'd kind of left the family business behind, and in the middle of seminary, he died. And I remember being at his funeral, entering into pretty deep depression and asking that question, what is the point? God, why? And if we're being honest, that's one of the questions depression brings to us. What is the point? That's the first cloud, the, the cloud of pointlessness. So there's another cloud. We call it the cloud of loneliness. He, he uses these two different uh, images that are really fascinating. It's the two loneliest birds in the world, the desert owl and the, the lonely sparrow. And he says, that's what I feel like. Suffering brings with it its own kind of loneliness. Does anyone understand? Does anyone care? And I think especially as men, this is one of the things that hits, if you're like me, that hits home the most is, why am I going to talk about this? Who, who can relate to this? Who is going to care about this? Why would I waste my time talking about it with another guy? They're not going to care. They're not going to relate. Um... And there's a real sense that we're, you know, my roommate, my freshman year of college, we both, we did that dance. He was suffering on the, and incredibly on the anxiety side of things. I was suffering incredibly on the depression side of things, and we never talked about it. And I think the reason, looking back, we never talked about it is, is the loneliness that we were feeling made it feel like neither of us really would care, neither of us really would relate. Can anyone relate? That's how it feels. But then, as if that weren't enough, I think maybe even the cruelest cloud that comes with depression and anxiety is what we could just call the cloud of lies from Satan about God. This is where Psalm 102 is confusing, is because I think there's a sense in which he's right in saying, absolutely, God, you brought this into my life. Absolutely. I think that's a fair biblical thing to say. But I think maybe he goes a little too far when he seems to think that God has turned on him. He's being raw before God, which is a beautiful thing that we don't know how to do, but I think maybe he's also confused and conflicted about who God really is and what God is really doing. And I think part of that means that oftentimes the cruelest thing about depression, and this is something we do not talk about, is that it, it makes us, it, you, you, you lose any assurance that God loves you. You lose any confidence that you are the delight of his heart, that you, are, that you have his affection in this unwavering, unending way. And this is where you know, John Owen used to, to fight this and, and, and talked about when you're in that place, learning how to get language and, and get promises to fight that feeling, to, to fight that uh, overwhelming feeling. And Owen would say, whatever your heart says or Satan says, unless you believe the love God has to you, you make him a liar. 
And there's this real sense that where depression flips that, where all you hear in your voice is, God doesn't love you. God doesn't care about you. If he cared about you, why would he let you be going through this? And the psalmist is feeling all these things. And if you, I mean, if, if you've been there, you, you can relate to this. And it does, it feels like this cloud, just this, I mean, it's the, the little cloud that just follows you everywhere. So it doesn't matter where you are, this cloud is with you. And it kind of colors and shapes everything in this really powerful way. And the psalmist is giving voice to that. So that's first the, the, the kind of the clouds of suffering. But then I think there are, as he moves through the psalm, these unexpected blessings that come from it. And this is where I love the Cooper line from God moves in a mysterious way. You know, you, you fearful saints, fresh courage take. Those clouds you dread are going to break with blessings upon your head. And I think there are, we do get something of those blessings in this psalm. And I think the first one is, we can simply call it the blessing of humility. There's a sense in which he, he comes to this place where he says, you are the king and all of the kings will fear your glory. You are the great one. You are the powerful one. You are the sovereign one. And I think in this powerful way, depression and anxiety and, and, and that kind of suffering reminds us of our limitations and it reminds us of God's power in this, in this weird, humbling way. As, as King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, when he is absolutely humbled in this beautiful and terrible way, and it's this reminder that the kingdom kind of works this way, that in the words of Tim Keller, the proud are out and the humble are in. So sometimes part of the blessing of a season of perplexing, suffering, depression, and anxiety could be to humble us before the Lord. There's also the blessing we could simply call of holiness. There's another sense in which the psalmist, he gives voice to learning to truly look to God and to God alone, to live for God and live for God alone. And I think this is one of this is why, you know, one of the, my favorite songs that we sing in REF is the John Newton song, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow. And in that psalm, it's really a story. He talks about praying that prayer, Lord, would you grow me in my faith? Would you grow me in my love for you? And he says throughout the song, it's a beautiful, it's a, really a poem, narrative poem that you should go home and just, just read, because I think it makes sense of the work of God in our lives, making a mess, bringing us low. And he says, that's what you did. You showed me the hidden evils of my heart. You crushed me. But if you didn't crush me, if you didn't bring me low, I would never have seen my need for Jesus. I would have never seen the glory and the beauty of Jesus and all his holiness. I worked up. Uh, there were two. I was a mess in college. I've mentioned that a couple times. And I didn't know what I want to do with my life. You know, my dad was gone. I didn't have that fatherly direction. I was trying to make sense of what should I do. So I did that thing in college where I started in English, switched to education, finished in psychology just to finish. It's a, when I look back, it's a miracle of God's faithfulness that I actually finished college, just graduated college. And as I was thinking about what to do next, there was this real season where I didn't know I was going into ministry. I didn't know what I was going to be doing. I had worked as a kind of a volunteer intern at a youth group, but I was getting married. That wasn't going to pay the bills. So I started working this landscaping job, which was one of the like, worst, best things I've ever done. If you've ever worked a landscaping job, you know this. I mean, it's like waking up 6 in the morning getting home six at night, and all we did was, this was not maintenance landscaping, this was installation, a lot of irrigation, a lot of planting these huge trees. Never done anything like that in my life before, and, and it was incredible and also terrible. And I remember, though, this one you know, thing that we often did, there was a nursery that our owner, you know, he ran a nursery, and so one of our jobs often was to take, before we were going to plant any plants, I mean, you know the drill, you would take the plants, you kind of cut them. If they'd been in the pot for very long, you would kind of cut them out of the pot. And then you would, you know, you would just 
break up the roots. You'd break up the soil and just, you know, sometimes that means you had, if it was a big tree, you'd take a, a shovel and just break up so that the roots could get loose. So when you put it into the ground, it would take root and it would be nourished and it would grow. And I think that's, when I think about the work of suffering in our lives, I think that's the image for me. It's, it's a breaking up that we might, that our roots might more go more deeply into the grace of the gospel, that our roots might go more deeply into the heart of God for us, but it's painful. Um, third, I think there's a, a blessing is similar of hoping in God alone. I, I think the psalmist gives voice to learning to depend upon God alone, who he says never changes. You're going to change. Your wife is going to change. Your friends are going to change. Your, your, you know, things are going to change. Your life is going to change. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's the same in his love for you yesterday, today, and forever. And suffering has this way. Depression and anxiety have this way of, of learning to center us in where our hope truly lies. That's really Psalm 42. If you read him, he's talking about how hopeless he is in himself and God and in the world. And then he says, put your hope in God. Why put your hope in God? Because God is the only place, he's the only safe place for your hope. There's no person that's a safe place for your hope. There's no job, there's no career, there's no amount of money that's a safe place for your hope. God alone, Christ alone, is the only safe place for your hope. And the psalmist is saying his depression, his season of depression taught him that. I love the way Samuel Rutherford talks about this in a letter. He's writing to one of his uh, congregants, and he's, he's out, he says this to them. I've always loved this. He says, I long to know how matters stand betwixt, I wish we used that word more, betwixt Christ in your soul, I know that you find him still the longer, the better. And I love this line. Time cannot change him in his love. You may yourself ebb and flow, rise and fall, wax and wane, but your Lord is this day as he was yesterday. And there's something the psalmist is saying that part of the blessing of this season of depression is learning that about God. And the last thing I want to talk about is just, where's God in this? And this is what I just want to call it, the hidden smile of God behind it all. And I think, if you're like me, the lie can be that it's, first, it's the smiles that it's not. First, it's not the smile of someone who's detached. In other words, I think it's easy for us, especially in the Presbyterian circles, to be kind of theologically, theologically, theologically well-trained deists who don't really think God cares about us. And I think as men, especially, who don't know how to do what we could simply call intimacy with God. To feel the delight of that love that Samuel Rutherford talked about. When he, and Rutherford used to always say, you know, when I find myself in, in, in the Lord's dungeon, I look for his finest wines. And he meant by that, I look for the love of Christ made pure to me in the gospel. And sometimes we don't know how to do that. And so it's not the smile, because Cooper, you know, Cooper talks about the... the you know, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. What kind of smile? It's not the smile of someone detached. We're not these deists. God's not this aloof and unconcerned CEO who's kind of running things from afar from his tower and doesn't really care about his employees, who has no concern, no compassion for our suffering, for our depression, for our anxiety. And it's also not the smile of someone who's deranged. You know, we're, we're not these sadomasochists who think that God takes pleasure in wounding us or God takes pleasure in bringing us low. God is not like, you know, the Heath Ledger version of the, of the Joker from, in Batman who just, in this weird, sick way, loves to bring pain into our lives. But I think instead it's the smile 
of someone who is dedicated to you. The smile of someone who loves you, who knows what he's doing in your life, who, when we filter that smile through the cross, who not only relates and understands our pain and suffering, but has purpose for it, who not only can identify with us, he's not detached, but who also has purpose and can bring healing even through wounds. His wounds speak to our wounds. He's not deranged. He is absolutely dedicated to you and to grow you in ways that you can't believe and that I can't believe. I'll close with this. There's a poem that um, when I was in Statesboro, Georgia, we had a, a terrible situation where essentially one of my, um, I had these two sisters that were part of my group and the older sister was married and uh, she and her husband lived in the same apartment, apartment conflict, uh, complex as the younger sister who lived with a roommate. And in this long story, we, we found some weird, this weird camera in the younger sister's apartment and it was footage of her, you know, after getting out of the shower. And we were trying to figure out what is, what is going on, what is this? We called cops and it ended up that her brother-in-law had been filming. He would, uh, you know, find the right times. They were all friends and he would get his camera and he would film her. And we, you know, like, I'm finding this out. The cops are telling us this. I call their dad. So if you can imagine the situation, his, he's about to walk his oldest daughter through the most painful part of her marriage and he's trying to walk his youngest daughter through the most painful thing that's ever going to happen to her. And their sister, how, how in the world is he going to walk them through this? And I'll never forget, he came to town. I mean, the, uh, he was a mess. Talk about depression, talk about anxiety. But I'll never forget him sitting in our living room. All of his family was with us. And he said, I want to read this poem for us. I'll never forget it. And the poem is called Jesus of the Scars. You've probably heard, you might have heard it. It's by Edward Shalito this World War I survivor, he writes it like this. He says, if we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the scars. The heavens frighten us, they are too calm. In all the universe we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us, where is thy balm? Lord Jesus, by thy scars we claim thy grace. If when the doors are shut, Thou drawest near, only reveal those hands, that side of thine. We know today what wounds are. Have no fear. Show us thy scars. We know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. And I love this line. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. I'm going to stop there and do, if you have questions, um, got about 15 minutes, um, 20, 15 minutes to, to talk as a group, uh, questions for Sammy, um, about that, or this would be an opportunity, um, about anything you've heard, um, this week, um, that he or I can, can speak to. Yes. I would have a question or a comment. Uh, any, any help when you're depressed or you're suffering anxiety uh, or pain, 
Yeah, yeah. You, uh, I think you're hitting on a real problem. Um, just repeat this question for the recording, if you didn't hear. What do you do if you're in the depths of it and um, you don't have the financial ability to pay for, you know, all this great um, therapy and, and um, medication, insurance, all these things? What do you do if you can't, if you don't have access to some of these helps? Um, and I would say, I would say if you are, I, I would say, and then I'll let you, if you want to add anything to it, I think God's answer to that is really, really clear, and it is um, deeply embedded into a local church community um, that is committed to you, to your health, uh, to your well-being, um, that loves you, that um, is, is willing to um, shepherd you through it in a, in a holistic way. Um, our, your officers, the officers of this church met this, this morning, and we talked about kind of a multifaceted, holistic approach to care of our congregants. And um, so somebody comes who, who, who needs help. Um, do they need financial help? Do they need mercy help? Do they need um, deacons, elders, counselors, whatever? That, that is found within the covenant that you make with the local church, that you covenant to them and they covenant to you. Uh, churches aren't always the best. I, I think one of the things that you need to look for in a church is whether they actively practice church discipline. And when I say discipline, I don't mean whether, well, I do mean this. Like if you, if you were to make shipwreck of your faith, they would step in. But discipline in, in, its, in its more um, the way Calvin spoke of discipline, which is um, shepherding, discipleship. You're not allowed just to be at our church and, and, and exist in anonymity. But we will, we'd care what's going on in your life, and we're committed to it in a covenantal way. Do you add to that? Yeah, I mean, I would say sometimes, I mean, in my experience, sometimes, like when I was um, in Statesboro, I, need, I knew I needed counseling, but couldn't afford it. And I knew I went to the elders uh, who then talked to the diaconate at our church, and they were able to help some with that. And our, my counselor was able to um, give me a, a break. So that was one. I know that sometimes it's worth the conversation. Can a counselor, uh, is there, are there any funds available, you know, to help pay for counseling that might be really helpful? Um, and so I think that's always worth exploring. And then I think if not, yeah, that um, finding the best resources within your covenant community would be the next, the next move. Questions? Yes. Well, you don't watch TV or movies, so I should probably take this one. Yeah, exactly. You don't know anything about culture. Exactly. I'm the culture expert. Yeah. Um, no. Yeah, I, I, that's a good point. I, yeah. I, think, I think that's something you're really qualified to speak to. Yeah, I mean, I think about, um, I think about like, one of my favorite recent movies uh, is that movie called I Love You, Man that is about this guy who's getting engaged, 
and he suddenly realizes he has no guys to ask to be in his wedding. And so the whole movie is dedicated to him finding friends, basically. And I think, and then, yeah, you can't think of other movies like Good Will Hunting, who, that, where there are these friends who can kind of speak into each other's lives. I mean, I think what, from my perspective, what it's getting at is our, our hunger for friendship and yet our inability to do it very well. And so maybe it gets, maybe it does get romanticized sometimes in movies. I think, you know, it's interesting. I just, we're going through Proverbs with my students and thinking about friendship as a theme in Proverbs. I think we have lost the art of friendship. And I think because of that, we don't know how to speak that way to each other. So I think in that sense, Hollywood's not capturing something that is happening, but maybe it's giving us a picture of something that we're longing for. And I don't know about you, but I know for me that's true. But I, but I think for me too, that can be bad. I mean, like sometimes we, we watch, yeah, we watch a movie or a show or, you know, think about even like in the 90s, it was Friends or, or Seinfeld where there were these friendships, but this seems to sort of be happening. And yet the irony right now is like for my students who are watching Friends, they're watching it alone on their computer and they don't have friends and they don't know how to make friends and they don't know how to be a friend. And I think, you know, the, 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 from that study from Proverbs, I think the, the verse from Proverbs that keeps haunting me is um, there's a proverb that says, the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. And I don't think we do that with each other that well. And there's a way of doing it too much. There's an art to friendship. You know, you, no one's going to want to be your friend if you're constantly trying to just, you know, just pounce on them. But there is a sense in which are we being friends if, if we're not doing the better is open rebuke than hidden love, you know. And so I do think as men, sometimes we get lost in that loneliness of not knowing how to be friends. And is there a way for us? You know, Wesley Hill just wrote a book that I would commend called Spiritual Friendship. And he's coming at it from a place of, he's a same-sex attracted man, um, but celibate and committed to being celibate. But I think part of what he's trying to say is part of the loneliness of being a same-sex attracted man in a covenant community is that we've lost this art of friendship, like a David and Jonathan kind of friendship, where we really do covenant with each other and, and are in it with each other. We let each other in, we don't let each other down. As men, I don't think we know how to do that very well. And his book is a real breath of fresh air in terms of recovering just throughout Christian centuries of how the church thought about friendship. Yeah, that's what I'd say. Yeah. Um, as a, as a Let me repeat it for the recording. Um, he, he's asking specifically for us men with spouses of uh, the way we look to our wives for affirmation. Um, 
and how, and I'm summing it up, but it's, he seemed to be saying it's almost as if we live off of the approval of our spouse and how important that is to us as men, um, which is, which I think is, if you're, if you're married, I think it's true, or if you're not married, um, you, you, you're probably looking, thinking, I got to get married to get that affirmation, to get that love. You want to speak to it? Yeah. Good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I relate to that a lot. Um, I mean, I think that there's a tension for me. On the one hand, I think where I want to be um, is to receive that deep soul affirmation that puts me, like pushes me out into the world in strength and pushes me out into my marriage in strength from Jesus. But I don't want to super spiritualize that because I do think we were made to need affirmation. I think sometimes we can, that can become an idol for some of us. I know for me, approval is uh, an idol in my life, and that works itself out in my marriage. So if my wife, you know, for a long time, yeah, wanting, wanting her to praise me or wanting her to affirm me, and, I mean, we're the polar opposites. My, my John Stone, some of you guys know, <laughs> he's the first person that pointed out to me that I am the emotional woman in my relationship, which is, I'll just own that proudly. And uh, it's true. Like I am, I am I real, I'm the, if you're a Myers-Briggs person, I am a deep F and my wife is a strong T and she is not going to be full of a lot of words of affirmation. She's not, she's working in that. She's growing in that and our counselor's helping us with that. But I do think moving into my marriage and strength, finding that from the Lord ultimately and then I do think that's where I don't see it. You know, it's funny. I think it's taken me a long time in marriage to see friendship, friendships not as a threat to my marriage, but friendships, the best kinds of friendship as a strength to my marriage, that my wife is not supposed to, in that Jerry Maguire way, like complete me, that there's a real sense in which I am already complete in Christ and, when, and she's already complete in Christ, and that makes us be able to move toward each other and without the expectation that we're going to f- completely fulfill each other. And, but I think the other part of what you're saying is, you know, you do see yourself the way your spouse does in this very real way. And there is, Tim Keller talks about meaning, meaning of marriage, that there's great power there. And there's great power uh, how your spouse sees you is, is really deeply part of how you see yourself. Um, so that's the tension for me. I don't know if that helps at all. Does that help? Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm thinking more like uh, male friendships um, is what I was thinking, you yeah. know. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, um, the, usually it either looks like one of two things. I'm either desperately trying to get that and she can, she feels either smothered by that or she feel, or I'm like fighting, we're getting in fights because I'll give you a really practical example. So I wrote this book and, uh, early on I let, I gave it to three people, my wife and two really dear friends. My two really dear friends read it immediately my wife didn't read it and it like crushed and this is again this is like part of the dynamic of our marriage 
it, and it wasn't because she like didn't love me or like didn't want to read it. It was just simply because business of life, the way our household functions, the way that I'm kind of off doing RUF and she's, I, I leave too much on her plate. She's, she genuinely didn't have time. But then there was a part of me with a, a right complaint to say you didn't make time. And so I had a genuine meltdown, like tears, sleeping on the, sleeping on the sofa. Like, and I, the refrain was, you, why did, you didn't read my book, you don't love me. You know, and which is kind of crazy because she's like, I, like I am this book. You know, I am this book. Like I've lived with this book. Um, <laughs> exactly. But for me, that was so. But but then my other default is just a distance, and just to be like, well, screw you. I'm gonna not even try. And I think that is where um, I mean, Lottie sized that up in me real quick, and where I am kind of a boy who needs my wife instead of what I think Jesus is redeeming in me into a man who can love my wife. And I still need my wife. But there's a difference there for me, that there's a wholeness, a wholeheartedness that I have in Christ, but also in community that moves me into my marriage in a better way. Yeah, you know, it doesn't surprise me that we've gotten two questions about that, Mm -hmm. um, because I I do think this is something... um, Lottie's writing a book right now, too, and, and, and for publishing reasons, they changed the title, but the original title of the book was uh, and Boys, <laughs> and essentially what she said is that every marriage problem that she's ever come across comes down to that, um, and we won't talk about the women's side of that. We'll mm-hmm. talk about the guy's side of it, mm-hmm. that, that, that we're boys, we're little boys who need the Jerry Maguire quote that we has been so romanticized, you complete me, um, will we'll crush you and it will crush your spouse and it will crush your marriage. Um, your, your spouse doesn't complete you. Um, your spouse compliments you, complementarians. Um, and if you ask her to complete you, um, she, she, you'll crush her and she'll crush you. Um, and I've discovered that in my marriage, the, the biggest... Um, the biggest shift that had to happen in my marriage with Abby is, um, is when Lottie essentially got her to say, all these people respect you, but I have a hard time respecting you as my husband because I feel like you need me so much. Mm-hmm. Like, like, like you go, I go to church and you see all these people that respect you, and, and you come home, and, and I feel like, I feel like you're this little boy who is just constantly needing me to tell you you're okay. And it's hard for me to respect a man like that. And it's hard for me to follow the leadership of a man like that. And it crushed me. And um, it took me on this path of learning to be like, oh, I, I am, actually am okay without you, Abby. Um, and what do you know? Her love and admiration and respect of me has just swelled as I haven't needed her. It's a fascinating, fascinating thing. We are complete in Jesus. Um, There's a noble thing to wanting your spouse to affirm you and love you and all that. But they, women know, women know when you need them. And it's it's weakness, and and it's really unattractive to them, to be honest with you. And it it hurts marriage. We've got time for one more question. Oh, she domesticated. What is it, Stephen? Do you do you know? The, she wanted to know what the real title is going to be. Oh, uh, 
the leader was like, uh, she's crazy. I mean, she's got a million titles of it, but we talked her out of that one, which is, which is good. <laughs> that would not have sold well in the evangelical community. Right. One more quick one. Yeah. Let me repeat the question of the recording, and then I'm going to let you answer that, and we'll be done. Okay. Answer it in five minutes or less. Yep. Um, he, he said, um, how do you help a friend who struggles with depression but tends to use the depression for attention from you, friendship from you, self-pitying, kind of suck you into that kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, I think first I just want to acknowledge that's a real thing that I think that I – as part of, I think, the, that depressed filter, you hate, I think part of the way it works is you hate yourself, you really hate yourself, and I think sometimes you attach too much meaning to one person, and you think if this person approves of me, or if this person can see me, or if this person can like me, then I'll be okay. And I think that is super unhealthy. Um, so how do you disengage that? That's a hard question. I mean, I think... Yeah, you can't be held hostage, and it's not fair, I mean, I, can, I say this as a depressed person, it's not fair for me to hold anyone hostage to basically what's this sort of enslaved relationship where I'm kind of saying, like, unless you love me, you know, you're going to pay for it. That's not friendship, that's not love. And I think sometimes there's a gentle way of saying, like, hey, you know, I had a, one of my best friends in the world, he's, he's, uh, used to be an RF campus minister, now he's <clears throat> at a church in Greenville. I remember we, we had this conversation where I was like, I remember uh, we were at RF training. I wanted him to get a dinner with us. And he was like, hey, something else came up. I'm going to go to this other dinner. And I was like, did that young, like jealous, you know, high school thing where I was like really passive aggressively mad. And he just kind of called me on it and was like, hey, like, I want you to know, like, I love you. I'm your friend. But also, like, I'm not going to always do what you want me to do. And um, you don't like own me, you know, which was, you know, there was shame in hearing that for me. But I could, when I, I knew it was coming from a place of love, and because of that, I heard him, and it's been the best thing for our friendship, because it kind of broke that spell, so to speak, of trying to make too much meaning of his friendship and trying to put too much, you know, of my identity in his friendship. And so I think if you're the person on the other end, you've got you've to call it in a gentle way and just say, hey, man, I love you. You're my friend. But also, I might need a little space where, hey, like, no, I've got other plans. Or, I mean, you can't, you know, I'm going to talk about this tonight, but there, love loves enough to disappoint. Jesus loves us enough to disappoint us. I think genuine friendship, genuine love does the same thing, even in a depressed person, without, without taking too much responsibility for that person. And that's the other thing I would say is typically in those friendships, depressed people like myself are drawn to people who love to take responsibility for other people. That's like the dream friendship. And... <laughs> If you're the other person, you've got to put up a boundary to say, like, I want to help you work on you, but I can't help you. I want to support you working on you, but I can't work on you. Does that make sense? That's what I would say. All right, we're out of time. I apologize. Um, I know we could sit here and talk. and We need more gatherings like this where we can do that. Um, all right, we need to pray. And, um, and uh, I don't see any Chick-fil-A. Uh, is it waiting for us to be done so they can just 
Bring it in? Okay, good. Let me pray. Um, ask the Lord to bless our meal and, and, um, and our time this evening. Father, first, we just ask that you would bless our manhood, that, that, that um, we men who project so much strength and yet um, inside carry so many fears and insecurities and sins and shame, we need you, our Father, to, to tell us that in Jesus you love us, you are proud, we do not need the affirmation the esteem of this world. We don't need career and money and power and a wife to tell us we're enough, that that you say we're enough, and that is enough. Um, Bless us in the gospel, Lord, especially this weekend as we just, as we're all raw from this discussion. And I pray that you would fill that up with, with your son Jesus and his gospel assurance. I pray tonight the fellowship would be good. Bless this food. Um, we pray for the logistics and, and all that, that it would just it would be a sweet time of fellowship together as a church. And uh, then, then as we come back together again this evening, I pray that you would do what you've done each session, that you would be with us and that you would bless us. And, um, and it would be a good time together. Um, thank you for this weekend. Um, we commit ourselves to your care in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.